Hello and welcome to episode 201 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter or X, Instagram and or Facebook. In this episode, we hear from Pat Yale, a veteran writer on Turkey. Previously, she wrote The Lonely Planet Guide to Turkey. So obviously, she's immensely well-traveled and experienced. And she's just written a book about another immensely well-traveled and indefatigable individual, Gertrude Bell. The book is called Following Miss Bell, Travels Around Turkey in the Footsteps of Gertrude Bell, and it's published this month, September, by Trailblazer Books. Gertrude Bell was born to a prominent family in Northern England in 1868, and she went on to travel very widely in the Middle East at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. Of course, that was really the heyday, if that's the right word, of British imperial activities in the region. And Gertrude Bell was one of the most widely known explorers and archaeologists back in her home country during her lifetime. Today, she still has a reputation in Turkey, rightly or wrongly, as basically an intelligence agent, a female Lawrence of Arabia, plotting to spread British influence and undermine Ottoman authority in the region. In our conversation, we talk about whether that reputation is justified, as well as Pat's own travels visiting the places in Turkey that Gertrude Bell also visited and wrote about. But before we get started, let me appeal once again for support. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listeners support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since we launched the podcast back in 2015, we have given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It is extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks. And I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Pat Yale. I started by asking her to talk about Gertrude Bell's background, where she was born and what her family background was like. 
Well, Gertrude Bell was, as you say, born into one of the six wealthiest families in the UK. It was an industrial family. Her grandfather had founded the chemical and steelworks in Middlesbrough. Obviously, her father then inherited the proceeds of that. So she was born into wealth, which made it obviously easier to be able to travel and do things like that because there was family money to support her. She was a brilliantly clever young woman who was sent at 16 to London to go to college, which was very unusual for someone from northeast of Britain to be sent down to London. So she lived with her grandmother for a while and went to college. And then she went to university. She went to Oxford and studied history. And she she completed her degree in two years and was the first woman to get a first in history at Oxford. Although at that time, degrees were not actually given to women, even if they'd been awarded. And the expectation at that time would have been that she would then get married and have a family. But she was perhaps never really suited to that role in the first place. But also she had a very unsatisfactory romantic life. The first man that she fell in love with in Iran when she was sent to Iran immediately after college to stay with a relative, Henry Kadagan, he was working at the consulate in Tehran when they met, but her parents decided that he was he didn't have a good enough income to support her in the way they would expect. They suspected he was a gambler. They refused to give their consent for her to marry him. And he then shortly afterwards fell into a river and drowned, died of pneumonia. And then she met in Turkey, as I describe in the book, she met a consul in Konya. At that time, there were British consuls all over the country. She met a consul, Dick Doughty Wiley, in Konya, and he was already married. And although it probably was a reciprocated relationship, unfortunately, he was killed at Gallipoli, which is where my book actually ends. And Gertrude's life, I think, fell into two parts. I mean, I think she struggled to work out what she wanted to do with her life if she wasn't going to be a mother, as would have been expected. So she became an accomplished mountaineer. She did a lot of world traveling. And then slowly but surely, she became an archaeologist and then slowly but surely an explorer. Most importantly, she was an explorer in the Middle East, in Syria, Iraq, Palestine, Israel, Saudi Arabia. But what had sort of not really been noticed, which was my particular interest, was that she also was really an explorer in Turkey itself. But since that was historically the least important aspect of her life, it's kind of got lost in the fact that she was a great achiever. And so biographers have had trouble stuffing all her life into single volume biographies. But the sad fact is that in the end, she she ended up after the First World War living in Baghdad, But then I think her life kind of, I think, almost sort of fizzled out on her. And it is assumed that she committed suicide in in Baghdad at age 58, which was a very sad end for such an accomplished life, really. And you talk about there how she was an inveterate traveller in the region, including in what is now obviously the Republic of Turkey. She travelled here 11 times between 1889 and 1914. And you describe her as a kind of female Lawrence of Arabia and a really enthusiastic participant in the Western then trend for archaeology in the region. And when you mention her name to some people on your travels, you know, many people that you come across question whether she was a spy. I actually found the book online being sold, and the book is called The Woman Who Drew the Borders, English Spy Gertrude Bell, and she's on that cover alongside uh, Winston Churchill and Lawrence of Arabia. And uh, she was indeed a friend of Lawrence, and she moved in those circles. So it's probably not surprising, considering the circumstances, that uh, that's what people see her as. Is that accurate? Was she uh, doing espionage work? Was she a spy for the British at the time? 
Well, I think she definitely was a spy for the British during the First World War and probably immediately after the First World War. But the period that I focused on, which is her youth and mostly her time in Turkey, I don't see that she was a spy. I mean, really, something like this has made me think a lot about what we mean by a spy. I mean, a paid spy is one thing, and I think that's what she was in the First World War. But the thing is that at that time, information was very scarce. So anybody who had it and relayed it to someone, I mean, I don't know that that actually necessarily constitutes being a a paid spy. But nevertheless, if you were the only person with the information and you're passing it on, then you could be, I suppose, accused of being a spy, even when I don't know that that's really exactly what you were. I mean, I did refer at one point in the book to her passing on to the British consul information that she'd gathered while she was traveling in the Middle East. But I compared to WikiLeaks really. So it's a difficult one, but I don't want to dwell too much on that because I don't really think that's the period that I was mostly focused on. And what I think is interesting is that although Turks who don't know much about her automatically say that she's a spy, those Turks, and there are very many of them around Turkey who have, who do know something about her, often have a deep affection for her because of the fact that, for example, her photographs are often the first surviving photographs of their villages, their small towns. And they often admire the fact that she's left this great record of particularly photographic evidence of the country, you know, in its early days. I mean, she was unusual in having travelled to such remote areas and taken photographs of them, because even people... Western travellers who did go to some of these remoter areas, although they wrote about it, they didn't necessarily always photograph. But she took a lot of photographs of areas that are not well known now. And some of those photographs are either the only source that we have for some structures or very, very rare or show those structures as they were at the time she visited when they don't look like that now. So they're very historically important. So I think it's not a simple story. I mean, I met many Gertrude fans, people who were extremely interested in her and didn't at all only see her in the context of being a spy. So it's a kind of a, an unclear picture, really. You touch on it there, and you write in the book that from a historian's point of view, Gertrude's most endearing characteristic was an addiction to putting pen to paper. Notes, letters, diaries, books, articles. Hardly a day went by when she didn't pour her experiences onto the page. And what sense do we get of her character from those writings? You get a a much better picture of her character from the letters than from the diaries. I mean, the diaries are a somewhat frustrating source because although they're very detailed and a lot of what the work that I did was based on the diaries because they tell you where she was when, they're often very evasive because I think a diary is, unless you're a politician and you know that you're writing specifically to be published in the future, I think diaries are often aid memoirs. So sometimes they can be very evasive and very unhelpful to someone like myself trying to get the information. So for example, I mean, there's two particularly irritating bits that I had to contend with. One where she said that she got permission to go and visit Topkapi Sarai, which was not a public attraction at that time. And then she doesn't actually say anything at all about what she saw. And her photographs are not particularly interesting at Topkapi Sarai. I mean, they're photographs that anyone could take nowadays. They're just not particularly interesting. So that was frustrating. And the other one that was, for me, particularly frustrating was she mentions, she says that the Khedive, the Khedive of Egypt was coming to lunch. I can't remember where, but she was going to meet him for lunch. And I'm very interested in the buildings on the Bosphorus that were put up by the Egyptians in the sort of turn of the 20th century period. 
And I would love to know what conversation they had, whether he was an interesting man, what he said, what he did, nothing. It just says the Khedive came to lunch and that's it. So you can't proceed with that at all. But the letters, obviously, to her family are much more open about in conversation. So you do get a better sense. I mean, she comes over as having a very dry wit, so often quite funny comments that she makes. She comes over as inevitably someone who doesn't suffer fools gladly. And she comes over as someone with a profound interest in virtually everything that she sees in terms of who she meets and the buildings that she sees. Again, I have met people who've said to me that she hated Turkey. And I really don't know where anyone reading her letters and diaries would get such an idea from, because usually they it was easier to find quotes where she says how much she loves the place, how much she loves Turkey and how much she wishes to learn to speak Turkish like a native, although actually that, that eluded her. So anyway, so I, I have the impression of someone from her letters who was you know, incredibly clever, incredibly accomplished, witty, but yeah, probably not someone that would be easy for everybody to get on with, probably someone who would rub some people up the wrong way. She was very confident. You know, she had a, a great deal of faith in her own abilities, I think. But yes, yeah, the, the, the Gertrude I felt that I spent time with loved Turkey and was profoundly interested in it. So I think if the war hadn't come along, it's almost certain that she would have continued to come to what we think of as the Republic of Turkey now. But the war severed her life into parts. And after the war, her interest became focused on Iraq and Turkey just dropped out of the picture. But I, I just assume that under the normal trajectory of life without the war, she would have probably just continued to come and come again and come again, possibly write about Cappadocia, for example, something like that. Now, you decided to take a trip through Anatolia, visiting the places that Gertrude Bell visited, taking in the archaeological sites and stopping to weave in historical anecdotes, as well as dwelling on contemporary social and political developments. So you set out from Istanbul, you go down the West Aegean coast and then cross central and southern Anatolia into the southeast before looping back to Istanbul. What did you want to achieve by retracing her steps and what were you expecting to come across during this journey? Well, I think I say in the book that this was all sparked by a quotation that I saw in an exhibition that was about Osman Hamdi Bey's daughter's guest book. And when I saw that quote, I was a little bit surprised and it kind of stirred a memory of photographs I'd seen in Guzeliot in Cappadocia that I knew Gertrude Bell had taken. And it made me kind of think, well, if you were a first time visitor to Turkey, you probably didn't go and visit Osman Hamdi Bey, who was a very important person in his home. So she probably had been before. And that got me sort of looking. And then when, once I started looking, I was just staggered at how much of Turkey she'd been to, that she'd been to all the touristic places that we all go to, you know, to Bodrum, to Ephesus, to Troy, to, to Sardis, to all these well-known places. And yet then the same person had also been to the Turabdin, to the tiny little villages around Midiat and Mardin that hardly see a visitor even now from outside. And that she'd been, you know, to sort of valleys around Durende. Again, in my experience, I never meet anyone who's ever been to these places. So, you know, that was when I was doing the research and I was just mesmerised by how much of Turkey she'd visited and how that fact wasn't really, I thought, actually known. And when I set out, I mean, I suppose I just had an expectation 
because I already knew Turkey pretty well as a guidebook writer, my expectation was that I would just visit these places and I would look at what she said she'd looked at and see the changes between how it was when she saw it and how it was when I saw it now. But, of course, I was overtaken by events. 2015 was a difficult year when we had two elections. And in the second half of the year, when I was still doing my research, things became very difficult in the southeast. So that what I had imagined as just going and visiting all these places again that I already knew turned into much more of an adventure when I was having to sort of pick my way around an unravelling security situation, which made it not that easy and uh, and I'm actually quite surprised that I was allowed to visit as much of the southeast at that time as I actually managed to do. Obviously, being a woman was an extremely novel thing for Gertrude to be travelling around in this bold way in those years in particular. You talk about how plenty of foreign men had traversed the Turkey of the late 19th and early 20th centuries and published accounts of their adventures. Gertrude Bell was perhaps the only Western woman to have done the same thing at the same time. But you talk about how by keeping a low profile... And really by being a woman, she almost managed to fall under the radar, evade some of the attention that she might have got and also avoid some of the expectations or burdens that she might have that she might have if she was a man. So how does that experience of hers, do you think, compare with yours in her footsteps? Did did you also benefit perhaps from flying under the radar a bit? I'm absolutely certain that I did. I'm absolutely convinced that had I been a man, I probably would have been asked at various points what I was doing. But I think because I was a woman, and not just that, I was an older woman, I think I was invisible. And I think nobody thought to say, well, why is this one woman wandering around at a time of tension, frankly? I just think I was invisible. I mean, Gertrude actually in Turkey was not, in what is now Republic of Turkey, was not so much flying under the radar. It was mainly in the Middle East itself when sometimes she'd been specifically told not to do certain things and she went ahead and did them anyway and was then you know, overtly said that she needed to try and avoid the authorities. With me, I felt under some of that same, I sort of felt the longer that I could go without anybody ever actually in authority ever actually saying to me, what are you doing, the better it would be. So I thought that I was very lucky that, as I say, I think I was completely invisible. And I don't think anybody bothered me. I mean, at various points in her le- in her travels in Turkey itself, she does mention being visited by people in authority who tried to discourage her from doing various things. You know, they would say to her, oh, you know, there are thieves and robbers on this road, or why would you want to camp here? It's not safe. You know, you should come and stay in our house or something like that. And she would just always brush all this off and just press ahead anyway, because she did have this great confidence. I don't think I necessarily had that same confidence. The advantage she had over me was that she was never actually alone. I mean, people think of her as this lone traveller, but in reality, she always had Fatu, her manservant, always with her. And she usually had an entourage of people who would put up the tents, bodyguards, guides, local guides, locals who had just befriended her and wanted to show her things. Whereas I, most of the time, was actually on my own. And of course, when you're a woman, that is sometimes problematic. And I mean, there were a couple of occasions where being on my own made me feel incredibly vulnerable that I was about to be attacked, even when I wasn't. And there's another instance that actually, in the end, was edited out for space reasons, where I went to look at a remote castle and I was felt that I was being followed by someone on a motorbike. I mean, his behaviour didn't make any sense, except that he was following me 
and lurking. And, you know, when you're a woman, it makes you very uncomfortable. I mean, he was deterred by me staring at him and then opening my phone and pretending that I was calling someone. And he obviously took that as a signal and went away. But I did at the time think, well, Gertrude always had someone with her. She also had a gun some of the time, which clearly, obviously, I didn't have a gun. So sometimes in that sense, I think she had the advantage on me. But obviously, in other ways, I had the advantage on her. I had nice modern roads and taxi drivers and so on, whereas she was contending with you know, mud, absence of roads, you know, having to stay in not very good accommodation, having to make do with whatever food you could find if you were camping in the wild. Whereas, you know, I always ate in cafes and restaurants. I didn't ever have to contend with that. But I think as a woman, I mean, I'm, I'm just quite sure that any woman would say it doesn't matter what age you get to, you are always going to be a little bit more vulnerable than a man. And you will always carry that vulnerability with you, which I think perhaps Gertrude didn't feel so much because she wasn't alone. And I think, you know, that's helpful. And she always had a man with her, not another woman. So there was that difference in our experiences. You mentioned before how in the second half of the book, the atmosphere darkens and the pace speeds up and you go careering into the southeast in mid-2015 when the war with the PKK is re-erupting, curfews are being declared everywhere. Obviously, the Syrian civil war is still really at its nadir across the border. ISIS is still spreading. And obviously, we've got these clashes as well between the Turkish forces and the PKK across the region, really. And you're right there as they're re-erupting after the peace process. Could you just describe that experience for us as you headed, headed into the region? What was that like and what were the difficulties that you experienced? My journey, I'd originally thought it would only take three months and in the end it took more like seven. So it divides very clearly into two parts. There's the nice, easy western side with no problems. And then it got to Ramazan and I was in Urfa and people were fasting for 17 hours a day in 45 degree temperatures. So I actually split the journey and I went home for a while and then started again in September. And by then we'd had a bomb go off in Suruch and the atmosphere had darkened completely because we'd also had an election that hadn't gone the way that was anticipated. And the amazing thing for me was to arrive in Mardin and there were no other tourists. And I mean, for a very long time, Mardin had been a very popular place with in particular, Turkish tourists for short trips, and it was filled with boutique hotels, and it was very difficult to get a bed unless you planned far ahead. And I arrived there, and there's just no one. There was just me, and every hotel was empty. So, you know, I could have a hotel bed for a very reasonable price in any hotel I wanted, which might sound good, but I mean, common sense tells you there's a reason that you're in that situation. I mean, people have disappeared because the security situation has considerably worsened. So, I, I mean, from then on, I mean, it will be obvious in the book that, you know, at various times I was apprehensive and I knew that I was running a certain risk, but you couldn't really assess how great that risk was. I mean, obviously, if I'd thought it was a very serious risk, then I would have stopped. But I, I felt that there was a risk. And there was particularly a risk if I wanted to do things that were going to be near the border, for example, which was necessary or in places that even in good times are quite tense and not always totally secure, such as Jizre and in the past Diabaka. I mean, I had a long experience with Diabaka and it had had very dark periods when you wouldn't have felt secure. And then it had had a period when it was on the up and everything seemed much safer. And suddenly we'd gone back to a sense of insecurity but obviously, I mean, I did press on. I mean, I, the book describes me going to see more Algin Monastery, which is on Mount Isla near Nusaibin. And that was in a very tense area at the time. 
And the first time I'd ever tried to go to that monastery had been thwarted because the, the day before I wanted to go, someone had trodden on a landmine on the hillside and been blown up. So the taxi driver, understandably, didn't want to actually drive to the monastery. And I didn't feel it was safe to walk because, I mean, if a local had trodden on a mine, then you know it was likely that I might do something like that. So this time I was absolutely determined to go there because it was very important to Gertrude's story. But, I mean, it was difficult. You felt like you were offering yourself into a vulnerable situation because I needed a driver, but it was hard to know who to trust. And it was hard to know what risk I might be running in taking on a driver and going off to this monastery. I mean, it turns out all this was fantasy. I had a perfectly safe journey there, perfect satisfactory. You know, it was was really interesting. I met a Gertrude fan who was waiting in the monastery to meet me because he'd heard he'd heard that there was a strange woman traveling around in Gertrude's footsteps. So it all turned out well, but it was often that sort of sense of, you know, I, I described being in Sylvan and, and being warned by locals. I wanted to go and look for a house on the wall that Gertrude had described. And locals had said to me, well, don't go down this street. There are gorillas down there. And then they'd said it was PKK in case I was in any doubt. So I'd wandered around and found another road and thought, well, maybe I'll go down this one. And as soon as I started down it, I came to a pile of sand across the road. And like, you know, common sense tells you that's just sand that someone's just put on the road. But at that time, locals had been actually blocking off streets no-go zones in Jisrae and Diabaka. So there's a part of me that saw that sand and didn't know, is this a barrier? Is this just a pile of sand? Or is it someone saying, don't go down this road? So I mean, I went round it and I went down there and I talked to people and it was very obvious from their body language, quite apart from their words, that I should not have been going down there, that I should go back to Batman and leave. And, you know, that's very frustrating if, you, if you're doing something like what I was doing. I mean, when I got back into the Dormish, it was like, well, I wanted to go to the Malabadi Bridge again. I wanted to go and look for an orphaned minaret that Gertrude had seen. But it was absolutely plain from local behaviour and local body language that they thought that it was unwise. And so I had to back off. So it was a strange atmosphere. And I do think, you know, if I had not known Turkey as well as I did from my guidebook work, Maybe I would have stopped. I, I don't know. But I think if you if you already know these places pretty well, I think it probably buoys you up with a false sense of security. You know, so I just went on, really. And as you know, nothing actually happened to me. So it was all fine. But it was a tense situation. And coming back to Gertrude Bell and the end of her life, she had a tragic end. She died apparently by suicide in Baghdad in 1926. That was years after the great love of her life had died as a soldier during the Gallipoli landings around 10 years before. So what do we know about the final years of her life? Well, obviously, I'm not a great expert on that because it was kind of beyond my remit. But what I would say is that her letters from that sort of time suggest that she had, I would probably call it a crush. I mean, it sounds quite derogatory, but she'd fallen for another man in Baghdad, another English man, and he was much younger than her. And my feeling is that he never saw her as anything as a friend, whereas her letters suggest, her letters home suggest that she had hoped when he divorced his wife, he would marry her. So I think the latter part of her life was actually kind of sad. I mean, I think she'd outlived her role, really. She had helped King Faisal of Iraq become a king. And then I think once she'd done that, there wasn't really a lot left for her there. Peter Sackville West visited her in Baghdad towards the end of her life. 
suggested that she was thin and looked unwell and she she'd been a chain smoker all her life so I think her health was also fragile I just feel like her life just fizzled out I mean I know that's a strange thing to say but I think I mean maybe it's what happens to, to all of us in the end but it just feels like she'd been this woman of great achievement in many different fields you know she'd been a translator she'd been a mountaineer she'd been an explorer she'd been an archaeologist she'd founded the Iraq museum you know she had been a great achiever but I think it wasn't clear what what further she could achieve it, it is that is my opinion and we'll never know for sure and I've said to people before that we can't be sure that she committed suicide because she took a she took sleeping drought and uh, Obviously, that always leaves the possibility that it was a mistake if there wasn't a note. And I, as far as I know, there wasn't a note. But my, my gut tells me that she was sufficiently much of a public figure that even if she had left a note, it probably would have been destroyed because of the scandal that would ensue if it was known that she committed suicide. So I, I just think, unfortunately, that she had a rather sad ending. Uh, I think she was a woman who, despite all that achievement, would have liked to have a partner. Whether she wanted children, I don't know, but I think she would have really liked a life partner. And I think she knew after that last last man in Baghdad, I just think that she knew that was never going to be possible and the days of exploring were behind her. So I think it is a rather sad end. And I think that's one of the problems. So for example, the rather unfortunate film that was made, Queen of the Desert, that about her by Werner Herzog, it wasn't a very good film. And I think half the trouble is that it's difficult, given that the unsatisfactory, I mean, I hate to say it, that's the wrong word, but I mean, it's a very tragic end for a life like that. And I think it kind of colours the way that people who try to make films about her or think about her have to handle that rather sad end, very sad end. And just to conclude, if you could just reflect really on, you know, from the start of this project to the end of it, what did you learn about Gertrude that you didn't know before? Did you have any new realisations about her from when you embarked on this project? What new revelations did you feel as you retraced her steps across Turkey? Well, the fact of the matter is I knew almost nothing about her before when I started out. I mean, when I saw that autograph in the visitor's book, I mean, I just knew she was one of these British women of whom there were a number in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century who explored and became famous, you know, as rather sort of esoteric, sort of odd women doing these completely extraordinary things. But that's all I really knew about her. I didn't know anything. If anyone had asked me where she was born or where she died, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I didn't know anything. So obviously at the start, I read the biographies, the very good biographies that do exist of her life before I set out. But I think the very interesting thing, and this was a learning curve for me, I hadn't anticipated that if you spend that long following someone, reading their letters, rereading their letters, looking at their diaries, checking details of their life over and over again, talking about them, waking up in the morning thinking, what do I do today to follow her? Eventually, that person becomes almost like a living person to you. So she began to feel like a friend, you know, like someone I actually had a relationship with, although obviously I didn't. But it began to feel like that. It began to feel like I knew her as a person. I knew that she was a woman who used lavender soap. I knew she was a woman who was five foot five and a half. I knew her, her friends. I knew who they were. I knew what she liked to eat. I knew the sort of jokes that she would make. 
I sort of knew her as a person who was still alive to me. And that's a very strange thing to try and explain to someone. I don't believe in ghosts. I think of myself as an extremely prosaic, rooted sort of person. But I just, I assume that other people who followed in the footsteps of someone would probably say much the same, that in the end, I felt like I knew her so well. And I, and I, it is, it's an experience that I still carry with me to this day. I still walk around Istanbul looking at buildings, looking at the date on them, and then thinking, so that would have been there when she was walking around. So I still carry her presence with me even now, years after I finished following her. That was Pat Yale. Many thanks to her for joining for episode 201. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. You can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word. Give us a shout out on your social media platforms. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter or X, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, once again, let me remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.